Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 28th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. An unholy war has broken out between the Minister for Health and the HSE over the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. Ultimately, very clear the Minister has authority to direct the HSE as to what services could be stood up or stood down. We in the HSE, and I include the broad HSE, not just the leadership positions, mm. okay. but consultants and medical leaders and GPs have a responsibility, a very serious responsibility, uh, to point patient safety issues and to be honest with people and say that if you're critically ill or if you're unstable, you should not be going but to the emergency department. In how, how unsafe is it? Uh, how unsafe is it? Uh, would it be tenable for you to stay in your position if you knew that there was such a great risk to patient safety in a hospital that you have ultimate responsibility for? Well, Michael, remove me from the equation. It's not, it's not about me or about me seeing my position. We call, say patient safety issues, Michael. We mean the outcomes are either not good at the moment or are in danger. Of, and that, that means somebody having more, on, on one end of the scale, having more protracted, complicated uh, medical admission or somebody who then requires transfer, but that transfer to a specialist service is delayed. And of course, that goes up to and including uh, somebody at risk of, of dying. That's Dr. Colm Henry speaking to me on Friday. Now, there's much speculation today that because the expert clinical view is that patients could end up dying if they are brought to the Navin Emergency Department for treatment that the HSE's CEO Paul Reed decided that his position was no longer tenable. There are more people working in Navin Hospital than ever before. There's more investment in Navin Hospital than ever before. Uh, it will continue to be a centre of excellence for orthopaedics, uh, for rheumatology, and a lot of these people who will end up getting operations in Drogheda will be brought back to the rehabilitation unit when that reopens as well. Okay, but we just heard the HSE chief say that he intends to proceed with the plan to close the emergency department in Navan, despite the minister telling him to hold off. He acknowledged that the minister can force his hand and stop that from happening under Article 10 of the Health Act, but he has said that the minister would make a mistake if he was to do that. Yeah, but what he also said, Michael, is that the minister addressed concerns with him, and they're the, they're the concerns I raised. The ICU, the, the 
eight to ten beds in Drogheda, and whether the MAU will actually be open and, and accessible. Okay, but is, it, that is that raised. not an embarrassment for the minister? That, uh, no, it's not an embarrassment, cause it, sorry, because what he said was, we're addressing those concerns. That's the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, speaking to me yesterday. Let's speak now to Padertoe Bean, Ain to founder and leader and TD for Me the West. And a very good morning to you, Padertoe Bean, also chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. Do you agree that Paul Reid has stepped down because he could no longer stay in a position where he was being directed to put patients at risk? Well, I think, I think it's very likely that the reason why Paul Reid stepped down was because he had come into complete conflict with the minister uh, in that um, what we've seen over the last weekend is absolutely unprecedented. I have never heard in all my life a public servant uh, come on a public radio station uh, and undermine, rebuke and um, his senior minister and then basically say that the senior minister is making a mistake. And how do you feel about that? Because uh, the senior minister is making a mistake in Paul Reid's view, but not as big a mistake as the one that you're making in Paul Reid's view. No, listen, what, what we want in Navin Hospital, first of all, is a, an A&E that serves the, the county of Maine. Okay, but I'm asking you about Paul Reid's view of what I, I you want. With, I don't agree with Paul Reid's view. First of all, any, any weaknesses that there are in the services in Navin Hospital are as a result of the HSE itself taking services away from uh, Navin Hospital. Secondly, I have spoken to senior clinicians uh, across the region who are saying to me loud and clear that the spin that's coming from the HSE at the moment is not true. That the, the fact of the matter is that if we close the A&E in Navin, it will lead to a significant danger and damage to people's health. Do you believe um, that Dr. Colin Henry was lying when he said uh, there's a risk that people will die I if think, they're brought to the emergency department in Navin? I think Colin Henry is working off a document that's 15 years old that bears no relation in, uh, to County Meads of today and of the population that we're in today. And also, if you ask me, do I have confidence in the senior management of the HSC to run the system, I would simply point to the record overcrowding that we have in, in hospital A&Es, to the record waiting lists that we have in hospitals around the country, to the million people who are waiting for an operation or a, an appointment, or to the, the, the tens of thousands of people today who will be looking for a GP visit, who will be told, no, you can't have one for maybe a fortnight. So are you happy to see the back of Paul Reid? Uh, because you obviously have uh, no respect for his expertise in well, all of this. What I'm saying is here, on, on a human being's uh, a, a basis, I listen, I wish the man well. Uh, I bear no ill will towards um, a, a Paul Reid. In my view, public servants should actually implement the will of the democratically elected minister, but that system has been inverted over the last number of weeks. It's an incredible situation that a minister is being told he's wrong by uh, on public radio. And, and, and even the He's being told that he, he's wrong because he's taken a position that has put patients at risk, which is the responsibility of Paul Reid and Dr. Colin Henry and Dr. Jerry McEntee. If, They're the people who take responsibility if something goes wrong, unless the minister has invoked Article 10 of the Health Act. If there is a weakness in the A&E in Navin, the way to fix it is to invest in it, to make it stronger, to provide the acute surgery services there that will make it safe. The addition of acute surgery services in Navin would put Navin on a par with Port Leisha, Nace and Wexford. Now, if a person is concerned about the, the safety of it, and that's a real concern and a fair concern, 
the, re- the solution to it is not to smash it up altogether and bin it and put 25,000 people onto already record waiting lists in Drada, but to fix it, to increase the capacity. Well, that's a question for the Minister. It's not a solution that Paul Reid or other HSE officials can bring to the equation, is it's, it? It's, it, it is a, if, if Paul Reid had the confidence to advise the Minister that he was wrong, in the, he had also surely the confidence to advise the Minister to make the investment necessary to fix it. Um, and, and that's a key issue. Like, this has turned, the, the battle over Navin A&E has turned into an enormous battle. I've never seen anything. In, in, the, in the 11 years that I've been working with the Save Navin Hospital campaign, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen uh, uh, well-paid senior uh, HSC management descend on radio stations around the country and nearly on a daily basis in order to shape people's opinions in relation to what should happen uh, to, to a hospital. Colin Henry, Jerry McEntee, Paul Reed. You know, it, it, it was, it's unheard of typically uh, for civil servants to be out publicly uh, debating in, in these terms. I've been annoyed about it because, you know, they've never willing, willingly come mm. on to debate it directly with the likes of myself. They usually come on separately where it's impossible to correct the statements uh, that they've made. And I also know that they've been very busy uh, briefing uh, uh, journalists in relation to uh, this in, in the background. And I would just say to, to journalists who are listening to the show, Go to the, the senior clinicians in the RCSI group. It, go to the GPs in County Meath uh, who have said very clearly that this is a dangerous thing to do. Um, there is, there is a, a bank, a wealth of medical professionals in this county that are fully aware of the danger that we're stepping towards if we continue down the road of closing our aims. You said if the emergency department in Navan is broken, fix it. Is it broken? Well, the emergency, uh, the, the emergency department in Navan doesn't have the same consultant's cover as uh, other A&Es currently. So it's broken? So it's, it, it, is, it is not satisfactory. I would agree with that. And that's mm. actually something... Is, that we, is it dangerous? And the information I have is that if it's closed, it will be more dangerous for patients. Is it dangerous, though, to bring patients to the emergency department today? No, it's not. It's not. And actually, nobody has lost their life. You're, 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 that's a very big claim to make uh, because we're talking about people's lives here and you're refuting the medical expertise from the health authority that has been applied to this. It is a, it is a big statement to make and I want to make it again. Navin A&E is a safe A&E for the patients that are using it. And the reason I know that is, first of all, because I've spoken to hundreds of patients who are using it, Secondly, I've spoken to the medical professionals working there and elsewhere uh, who are telling me that people are achieving good results. Uh, there are people are in and out of, of, of Navinani within five hours uh, and they're at home then with their families recuperating from the illnesses that they have. Uh, while I know for a fact that people actually in the, the centre of Dublin are bypassing the matter A&E and actually on occasion coming to Navinani because they can't get the service that they need. Um, and medical, uh, medical treatments and diagnosis delayed leads to sub Did you speak to any of the near misses? Because the HSE has said there were a number of incidents, a number of adverse incidents, and they were close calls. Well, uh, and this is an important issue because I wanted to make sure that I knew the facts here. So what I did, Michael, was I put a parliamentary question into the minister. And I asked the minister, how many adverse incidents are happening in each hospital? The reason I asked that question was, I wanted to, to make a comparative analysis between each hospital and each of their outcomes. And the minister refused to give that information. He said he didn't want to create a league table of hospitals. 
But what he did do was give the adverse incidence for each hospital group. So me, uh, our hospital is in the Ireland's East group. Mm. Uh, Drogheda is in the RCSI group. Mm. The RCSI group, its adverse incidents have increased by 75% in five years. Mm. Our adverse incidents have increased by 30% yeah, but in I mean, five years. I, I mean, you, you know, you're... you're, you're Playing with statistics there, because no. you, could al- you, know, you could also say that the Loud County Hospital is in the RCSI group uh, and has had absolutely no adverse incidents because it doesn't treat emergency de- but patients. They're, 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 it doesn't well, provide emergency department care. And that's why there are no uh, incidents of that sort in that hospital. But, but it's in that but same Michael, group. Michael, so Michael, you're talking about Navin, where there's a, uh, which is the smallest hospital I- I- in the Ireland. Yes, but what I'm saying to you is, we have asked for the government to, and the HSC mm. to provide the, the, the evidence. Yeah, but, ma- and the minister the has said no, the, uh, and we let people make of that no, what they will. That, but that's not good enough, because your question is very valid. We should be able to work out the comparative analysis between adverse incidents between all of the hospitals to work out which is safe and which isn't. And the government are refusing to provide that comparative analysis. And until they do, then they're not helping in the decision-making process here. And the final point on adverse incidents mm. is it's increased, they have increased from 70,000 in 2017 to 105,000 today. The number of extreme adverse incidents, and that includes deaths and incapacity, has increased from 317 to 570 uh, in in that period of time, mm. so but you're asking but me. We don't do know I what have, that means. Nobody it, knows what that means. It does because at the same time we're seeing hospital overcrowding increase, mm. and we know that hospital overcrowding also uh, contributes to. Adverse I know, but you don't know what it means specifically as to whether one of those incidents uh, relates to Drogheda or Beaumont or the Matter or Navin or whatever the case may be. You do know that those uh, who have uh, extremely uh, insight, uh, extreme insight into this are telling you that it is not safe to go to Navin and that it is very dangerous and that it could result in the death of somebody. No, and, 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 and that's that's simply not true. I know that there are... Um, well, that's what Dr. Colin Henry said a yeah, moment and, ago. And, but Colin Henry is is contradicted by senior clinicians in the RCSI group. And that's, it, it's as simple as that. And he's the chief that's clinical officer for the HSE, though. You can't dismiss his uh, opinion that, that quickly. There, there's, there's no doubt about it, but the, the people that I have spoken to and the people who have spoken directly to the minister at the stage as well, uh, and to the Taunashta at the stage mm. as well, uh, are people of very high calibre of... Uh, um, immaculate uh, careers of um, you know high high education, and there are people that I respect as well. And 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 the, but the point of this uh, argument between doctors mm. is 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 not the point that we really should be focusing on. The point that we really should be focusing on is how do we fix it, mm-hmm. and we we fix it by investing in it. Um, and, you know, like we saw this... this and, and providing all of the services uh, in the hospital that you'd find in other hospitals. Stay with me for a moment, Padre Tobin, because you were the subject of very strong criticism on the programme yesterday. Let's hear what Thomas Byrne had to say about you. Well, I can tell you very clearly, I won't be taking health advice from Sinn Féin or Padre Tobin. AIM2 and Sinn Féin, during our pandemic, were opposing many of what the government proposed, which kept people alive. AIM2 in particular, week after week in the doll, opposition to many of the measures that we had uh, on COVID. So I will not take my advice from Palato Bean on health. I will not take my advice from Sinn Féin. Will, will the minister stop this? I will listen to experts. The minister has already stopped this. We want to make sure there's a proper health service in Navin. 
we know that this government is investing more than any previous government in Navin Hospital. Okay. More, more people will use Navin Hospital next year than this year. Uh, that will continue for the growing population. There will be different things done in Navin, different things done in Drogheda, different things done in the dock. And most people, if they're honest, listening to your programme here today, will have used a variety of hospitals mm. in Mead, in Louth, in Dublin, uh, for various issues that they might have okay. that require the health service. Okay. It, it, the reality of it's a question of where, not a question of if, uh, and what needs to be done between them. Every, 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 the idea that Pallor Tobin has, that almost everything you need will be done in Navin, is simply not something that is true in the modern world. There okay. are specialties in various hospitals around the place, okay. and we have all so, used them. And everything so, 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 Minister, it's clearly a question of when the emergency department closes, not if. Well, the question always was, since 2013, since this policy was established, was when when there, when there would yeah. be capacity in Drogheda. That's the reality. Yeah, that's uh, Thomas Byrne uh, speaking yesterday. It is clear that systems have to be put in place before Navin closes, uh, but Navin will close. Uh, and uh, Thomas Byrne critical of the position that you're taking on this. Yeah, well, it, it, Thomas Byrne is unique. And I don't say that in, in a good way. Um, Thomas Byrne stood behind the, the Save Navin Hospital campaign with Micheál Martin a number of years ago and got his photograph taken for the banner and said he was fully supportive of the objectives of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. He also stood on a, a, a trailer on a platform in front of 10,000 people and pledged his party support for the protection of the A and E in Navin. Now, over the last number of weeks, he's probably been the only TD in the county that's actually actively making an argument for the closure of the A and E. In fairness, um, Damien hasn't been as strong as, as I'd wanted. I will say Helen McEntee has been stronger, but Thomas is openly arguing for the closure of the A and E in, in, in our hospital. And it's not just me that's saying that. I have sat in, in RTE studios where the interviewer has actually challenged him and said, Thomas, are you actually making the argument for the closure of your own A&E? Now, for a, 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 a TD from a given a county with 225,000 people living in it, um, to be making that argument uh, is, is an incredible situation. Um, Thomas should be fighting for his constituents who live in the likes of Kells, um, in, in Nobber, in places like that, who need access to a safe a um, and E in a timely fashion, uh, and Thomas unfortunately isn't doing that. And you know, I, I would ask him to come back to the hospital campaign to start to support his constituents. Mm. Um, and if sure you were minister for health, would you indemnify uh, Paul Reid or the next CEO or any of the HSE uh, officials? Should there be an adverse incident? Should somebody lose their life because they were treated in the wrong hospital? Well, first of all, I, I believe that the HSE has indemnified uh, all of the hospitals uh, in, in the state in relation to uh, any of the activities that happen within it. Do I don't mean, think what, what, what do you mean, that the hospital has taken uh, out insurance? Well, every, every hospital is, is covered by the state claims agency in relation to... Uh, any, yeah, yeah, but... Any, so, I so mean, the, 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 point, the, the, the point is, how, how could you expect uh, experienced health officials to stand over, to preside over what they believe is a dangerous, if not a grave, situation. Just to make this clear again, there is two schools of thought at the moment in terms of uh, the safety in Navin Hospital. Um, there is a group of medical professionals that are employed by the HSE. These are the same people who have managed the overcrowding that's happening in, in the A&Es and in the waiting lists and the crisis in the GPs. They believe that the capacity in Navin should be shut and the capacity in the region should be lost. There's another school of thought, which are consultants 
uh, who are working throughout the region, do, and doctors and GPs, who are doing their best at the coal face trying to help people uh, uh, in their lives. And they're saying that it would be dangerous to close uh, Navanini. Both actually admit, if you talk to them, that if we invest about 10 million euros into Navan on an annual basis, uh, that actually Navan would be as safe as the likes of the three hospitals I mentioned earlier. It is the objective of the Save Navan Hospital campaign that we follow that route. We don't want a, a, a dangerous situation. We want the best for County Mead. And I'll tell you one thing that's probably not really understood is that, you know, Mead is turning into a, a commuter county. Uh, and if you take the A&E out of Navan, any foreign direct investor in the future who wants to invest in this county, he or she will have a, a list of boxes that need to be ticked in relation to where they will locate. And a functioning health service and an A&E will be in the top three boxes. And if we reduce yet again another service from this county, we can kiss goodbye to a heap of in, uh, external investment in, in this county, which will mean that not only will we have the majority of, of people leaving the county to go to work every day, but practically everybody will have to leave the county to go to work every day. Mm. Um, so and if we want to build this county well. into okay. a decent society where people can work, raise their families, you know, uh, get involved in community activities and, uh, and sport, have access to good transport and have access to good health care, we need a functioning A&E okay. in this county. End of story. We're over time at this stage. we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us. As always, Pater Tobin is uh, the chair of uh, the Save Navin Hospital campaign group. He's also the leader and founder of the AIM2 party and a TD for Mead West. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Joint uh, Rockers Committee on Sport will publish a report today on uh, the elimination of any and all abuse directed towards officials, referees and players in sport. Neve Smith is uh, the chair of uh, that committee and a Finnefall TD for Cavan and Monaghan and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. It really is a sad state of affairs that a report like this is now necessary, isn't it? Yeah, well, it, it is, and I suppose it's not. I, I suppose it's in everybody's mind as we're chatting about this this morning, it's what we saw on Sunday, but this isn't something new, sadly. <clears throat> uh, back in March, or sorry, November of 2021, there was uh, hundreds of sporting matches that were cancelled, and it was around this very particular issue of excessive abuse. abuse. Um, and, you know, on foot of that, the committee decided to have a hearing with the national governing bodies around this, and sadly, it, it is something that has been there for some time, and it's something that needs to be dealt Right. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your report and the recommendations in it, if you would. Yeah, well, we heard from, I suppose, the, um, as I said, the national governing bodies, in particular Sport Ireland, the FAI, the GAA, the um, rugby people as well. Um, and, and sadly, as I said, ref- it was this report is specifically around referees, but obviously during our hearings, we heard that abuse can happen among players, it can happen from spectators, it can happen among management. And really and, and truly, at the moment, there's kind of nothing in place that is uh, dealing with it effectively. So our committee on foot of that, I suppose, the big um one of the many recommendations that has come out of this is that we would actually see the department appointing a sports sporting ombudsman that would have the uh, I suppose that particular role that would allow sporting organisations that I, they have a point of contact that players or referees or coaches who are experiencing this have a point of contact for um, complaint but more importantly that there are repercussions for people who participate in this because as I said what we saw on Sunday was really deeply dis- deeply disappointing mm. for people um, who are viewing it, who are watching it and I'm sure for the players themselves that most of the conversation since Sunday has 
been about the... Um, I don't like using the word violence, but the aggression that was shown on, on the sports scene well, that day. It was extreme violence. I mean, it, it was a brawl at best, but it was it multiple assaults, a bunch of gougers, really. Uh, they were acting uh, in the most dreadful of ways. And uh, under normal circumstances, uh, they'd be arrested and convicted for assault. I know so Mr Jack Chambers making that point last night and um, you know there was Gardaí obviously on, on the sidelines watching on and you're absolutely right if that happened in any other social um, format there would be arrests made and people would be taken away in handcuffs it just would not be acceptable and, and, and for that very reason there can be no exceptions made because these gentlemen are you know football stars which they are they have a, a more important job in terms of uh, the role models that they are and, and the I suppose the, the core that they must display um, and we all understand you know how heated these things become I've heard people talk about oh you know the pitch should be organised differently or they should be brought in and out of the dugs a little bit differently at a different time I mean that just isn't acceptable and you know manoeuvring around a pitch to make mm. you know keep teams separately I really don't think we should have to resort to that Maybe it's the way um, they're brought up though because you see this sort of thing at under seven matches and parents on the sidelines abusing the referee yeah, well, I I have to say, I have a five-year-old, Michael, and I've only started, I suppose, because she's of that age now, starting out with the GA and going to football and, and, and all of that. So um, I suppose I'm more aware of it now at the older matches, not just at her age, I have to say now, but at the older matches, how that kind of abuse can happen and be hurled, you know, from parents, from spectators, and it really is totally unacceptable because well, we have to remember all of the referees mm. all of the coaches all of those people who are giving up of their time are doing it as volunteers mm. and who in the name of God would uh, accept that kind of abuse or behaviour I mean referees talking about um, receiving online abuse receiving threats to their houses uh, receiving phone calls I mean it gets really really serious and really really dirty uh, and that's why I suppose the committee has come out with this report come out with recommendations around this that will give I suppose Sports Ireland the um, opportunity to engage with the national government bodies and the local sports authorities to have I suppose measures in place that will affect their funding essentially yeah. so if the behaviour isn't of a certain standard if there isn't an anti-discriminatory uh, and anti-abuse um, strategy in place that these people uh, and these organisations will face sanctions and severe ones. Right. And, you know, if, if, if just discipline isn't one part, but funding will have to be looked at. Mm. And what kind of strategy should they have in place? Should people be banned from the sidelines? Or? Well, I, there, there has to be measures put in place. I'm not going to decide for the mm. for the um, sports council what that should be, but I mean there has to be sanctions in place. We also heard, I suppose, of. Um, the, again, I go back to the game on Sunday where there were, were four Armagh um, players had received red cards. There was an, an appeals process put in place and those red cards were overturned. I mean, you just can't have that because mm. if, if, if it's un, unacceptable behaviour at one level, surely it's unacceptable all the way up the line. Mm. So if players see that they're going to get off with that and there's another option and another round to get around and get off with that behaviour, where's the deterrent? Yeah, well, where's uh, the good sporting attitude where are the people who want to be a good sport and hope that the best team wins and shake hands afterwards and enjoy the process of fighting each other in a sporting way Nave, we have to leave it there for the moment but thank you indeed for joining us we'll hear more about your report when it's published later today that's Neve Smith who's the chair of the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Sport 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, as you've been hearing, uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, will uh, be bringing legislation uh, to government uh, today. The third strategy on domestic violence, uh, it promises a, a doubling of minimum sentences uh, for people who assault uh, other people that they're living with uh, as such and a maximum of 10 years in prison. Uh, promises a lot more refuge places, a 100% increase in a 363 million five-year strategy uh, which uh, they uh, say will work off four pillars, protection, prevention, prosecution and policy coordination. Let's speak to Nolene Black well, who's uh, the CEO of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Very good morning to you, Nolene, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, we'll get more details about this strategy uh, later I- in the day, but what do you make of it, given what you know at this stage? Well, this stage? It's, uh, it's very welcome, Michael. We have been waiting for some time. Currently, the government has no published um, strategy or uh, plan for dealing with the issues that they know exist in relation to sexual violence, domestic violence, and other forms of gender-based violence as well, because you're taking into account things like female genital mutilation and the like. The last strategy we had ran out at the end of uh, last year. And, uh, but even ahead of that, there was a kind of a general acceptance from everyone, including the minister, that the last strategy was too general, that it wasn't um, focused enough. And that, that it was no one's responsibility to do anything. And you know when it's no one's responsibility, everyone is passing the buck to someone else. So, so the Department of Justice, the Minister, and all the organisations working in the area have put a lot of time and thought over the past year or so into identifying what do we need to make a substantial dent in the huge problems we have around sexual and domestic violence. And I think what we're going to see this afternoon revealed uh, uh, being launched by the Taoiseach, which is a sign of how seriously government is taking it, with Minister McEntee and Minister O'Gorman as well. I think what we're going to see is a thought-out plan that says, as you said there, uh, four different uh, approaches, three things they're taking very seriously. One, the protection of those who have experienced and been harmed by sexual and domestic violence and other forms of gender-based violence. Secondly, uh, ensuring or building a capacity in our country, which we don't have at the moment in truth, to prosecute those who do the harm and make sure that they're kind of held to account for it. And then thirdly, giving uh, our young people in particular, but everyone, uh, an understanding that this harm should never have to happen in the first place. Mm. And then building all of that under kind of an umbrella which says we're going to join up the thinking between the various government departments. Because we all know, no matter what the problem is, if you go to one department and they say it's someone else's problem, you get worn out simply trying to find out who is taking responsibility. Okay, Uh, uh, and how it's going to be implemented uh, should be uh, announced today as well, uh, which will be unusual uh, in uh, terms of these type of strategies uh, to some degree, uh, and I'm sure that will be a welcome aspect Mm -hmm. of it. Uh, And uh, it, it comes uh, following uh, the conviction yesterday of a, a 56-year-old man uh, of two counts of rape, one of his partner and one of a boy, his partner's son, age, who was aged between 9 and 11 at the time. 
Uh, now, uh, this really is a, a very disturbing uh, case because he was also found guilty of uh, 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 cruelty to two other children uh, during all of this. Uh, the boy who was nine at the time is 19 now and he said he looked on this man as a, a father figure uh, and he, he said that um, he had wanted justice not just for himself but for the child that he was. What's really peculiar about this uh, particular case, Nolene, is that there were 11 character references provided to the court on behalf of this man, which included statements from friends, neighbours and people who had worked with him, describing him as a caring father and a good friend. One person said they never found the man's behaviour to be inappropriate and added that he was a dedicated family man. It is peculiar, isn't it, that people would involve themselves when the charges are so serious against somebody? Yeah, as part of our system as well is that people can present evidence uh, of that they, that they're they're not just the offender in this particular case, but this is a very very difficult area, um, and in fact. Uh, there's a good bit of focus on it right at the moment, Michael. Uh, uh, Senator Regina Doherty has introduced legislation that we worked with her on. Um, it, it, she's, it, she's introduced it into the Shannon, and it looks like that the, the state accepts the principle. And indeed, the Court of Appeal has also said something similar in recent times, that it's all well and good for somebody. You know, somebody comes before the court. They're convicted of an offence. And then the court has to look at not just the offence, but the offender. But the, the way our system works is that these character references are often entirely out of context. Um, and while, of course, somebody can, uh, can, give, uh, can give information about somebody doing well otherwhere, I mean, this, you know, um, uh, references around somebody as a caring father and the rest of it, what Regina Doherty has put into her legislation is saying that these references should be subject to testing by the court. That if someone is prepared to go forward and say that, that they should be prepared to give evidence on oath to that effect so that the court can better assess them. Because it has been kind of, you often see people going in with 30, 40, 50 character references. Uh, often the character reference is given by the person who has been convicted and somebody is asked, will they just sign it? And that has been kind of a feature of our system. Mm. So I think that's going to be interrogated more. In this particular case, we do know that sentencing will take place next month and that the judge will consider everything in the case. But in terms of this case, the jury convicted after a trial where, uh, the, where the accused person pleaded not guilty. The jury unanimously convicted the man of these offences. And that now has to be weighed up in sentencing. But also weighed up in sentencing will be the absolutely heartbreaking uh, victim impact statements, including the bit you read out there of a young boy's trust and his childhood being broken, uh, the judge will take that into account and will also take the character references into account. But, but the character references are just someone's opinion, not tested. I think that needs to change. We, there should be more um, interrogation of uh, things that people randomly say as there is about the rest of the case. Mm.
Absolutely. Nolene, we have to leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. We'll remind people that if they do wish to speak to somebody uh, about sexual violence, if uh, they've been a victim of sexual violence or rape themselves, or if somebody they know has been uh, the victim of rape or sexual vi- violence, uh, there is uh, the 24 our helpline at the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and you can call that free and uh, speak to somebody uh, who will understand uh, your situation and be able to give you the best possible advice and that's open 24 hours a day as I say 1-800-77-8888 that's 1-800-77-8888 Michael Reed on LMFM Uh, To uh, continue the conversation if you like about uh, gender-based violence uh, and indeed uh, gender equality and the role that men have in this and not just uh, the role that men have in being violent uh, against women but how men can work uh, to protect women and the he for she campaign. Uh, The President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, has taken up a role as a he for she champion. This is a United Nations initiative and speaking at a garden party in Orison Ukron last Thursday President Higgins said that he, along with a number of other heads of state and heads of government, are committed to using their influence to convey a simple but vital message that men must stand in solidarity with women if women's rights are to be fully achieved. Let's hear a little bit more about this now. Empo Mokosi is a former direct provision resident and gender-based violence activist, scholar, writer and member of Massey, the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Empo, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You were in Orson Ukran on Thursday. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Yes, I was there and it had, it was a great honour to have been invited. Indeed. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that uh, you were very happy with what President Higgins had to say and how he's taken this on board and agreed to become a he for she champion. Yes, it's actually very impressive uh, to see men of power like him taking the lead because, as you mentioned and in earlier, and that he, he, he says men are the key role players in making sure that uh, gender-based violence um, can be dealt with because it's not a woman's problem only. It affects everybody across, across board. Uh, you can be a father, your daughter can be uh, affected. So it is important that as women, because people, in most cases, not in all the cases, but in most cases, the statistics show that women are the ones who are suffering. So if they women are suffering, it means the perpetrators are the men. So we need to change um, the, the dialogue and focus on, instead of us focusing on how women can protect themselves, instead we need to focus on why do we need to protect ourselves as women for men. So we need to work towards engaging with them in that space where we talk about these things in uh, open and them being in the forefront helps because um, that's I'm saying. Mm. Yeah, they are the perpetrators in most cases. Is it that women need protection? That's the whole point. We need protection because as a woman, we are always afraid in the workplace, in the homes, on the streets, because we have become that vulnerable social group in societies. So what the, the, fundamental, the fundamental question is, why do we need to be afraid? We, shouldn't, we should be free equally as a man. I don't think there's a time when a man walks out in the streets 
at night he worries about being raped. He worries about, as a woman, you worry about all other social ills plus all that uh, harassment that can take place, all that raping and, you know, so indeed we feel like we we need to be protected. Hmm. Uh, I think uh, there was a rude awakening for a lot of men in this country last January uh, when Ashley Murphy was brutally murdered in County Offaly and the women of this country uh, were outraged, appalled and they were angry and they spoke uh, very, very vividly about life in this country as a, a woman and how different it is to that of a, a man and the things that women need to do to make sure that they are protected, to walk together, to walk where it's bright, not walk alone when it's dark. They walk with their keys in their hands so that they can use their keys as a weapon. They get into a taxi, their friends call them afterwards to see that they're okay and all of these kinds of things. As I say, that was a rude awakening to a lot of us men in the country because we have a very different life to women in this country. We don't have to worry about those things. That's very true. That's very true. And as a parent as well, when you have a girl child, you worry about her going out because we see what, like you're mentioning, the case of Miss um, Murphy, what happened to her. We, we, it, it was quite shocking that it happened during daylight. And... So it's something that we always worry about as women. And like you're saying, I don't think any man worries about that. It's a totally different ballgame when you're on the other side of the fence being a woman because it can happen in, at any time. And the worst part is it happens even in the homes. And culturally, uh, people were not supposed to talk about these things. So when they happen, people don't talk about it. Mm. So in other cultures, like where I come from, when you talk about gender-based violence, it's like you're airing your dirty laundry to the world to see. It's one of those hush-hush uh, topics. You're not supposed to talk about it. Instead, you fake, oh, I hit a door, I fell. Whatever stories you, you can uh, cook up just to protect the, the name of the family, you know. Uh, and are they the kind of stories you told uh, when you were uh, a victim uh, of violence? Exactly. That's, that's the whole point. And uh, the message I always say is that when we talk about these things, it's not necessarily because you want to embarrass the family or the perpetrator in any way. It's about to make other women aware of these mm. things that they happen because the more we engage in this kind of uh, debate, the more the men can join in, like we're saying, the more the leaders like uh, President Michael D. Higgins has now, is now the champion of the he, she, uh, he for She campaign. It's then when we talk about them openly that we are able to deal with the problems and identify where the issues are. But if we treat them as a taboo, as a secret, you know, so how will we then resolve the problem? Do you want and to that, do you want to tell me about your own experience, Ampo? Yeah, well, um <laughs> I was married for nineteen years. I'm from Lesotho in Southern Africa. My country is landlocked by South Africa and those two countries down there and some of the countries in the world are some of the highest countries, they're some of the countries with the highest uh, numbers of femicide and gender-based violence. So it's, it's, it's very tough being a woman in such spaces because um, there isn't much legal support to, to help a woman who's in such a case because that's, that's why it takes place a lot, you know? Mm. So... Um, I had to flee my country because of that, because the the system wasn't protecting me. 
So obviously your fear, because every day you read the newspapers, every day you listen to the radios, there's a dead woman killed by in the, who died in the hands of their loved ones, you know. Mm. And so, was it your husband who was violent against you? Very much so. Right. <laughs> and are you saying that it, uh, it would be unusual uh, for husbands not to beat their wives? Culturally, um, it's a patriarchal, patriarchal society. So I think from a very young age, uh, men are trained to believe that they're heads of the families. And I think they, there's, there's, there's a misconception or misunderstanding of being what the head is. It's more like they're decision makers. They can discipline a wife. In fact, they say when we get married as young girls in my culture, they say, Oh, and you, you, this is your father, you know, you are the child of that person. So because corporal punishment is still allowed in such parts of the world, because you are referred to as a wife, as a child, it means the man can actually discipline you when he feels like you have done something wrong, you know, mm-hmm. because he is the parent. In fact, we are even taught to treat, to, to address them as Mr. So-and-so, father, so it's actually sinners and unruly to call your partner by their first name. You're supposed to treat them like they are your father. You know, it's like a father figure in the family. My God. So, <laughs> so, so that's what makes it complicated because um, that's that's how we are brought up. You know, yeah. and mm. I think the other issue would be that uh, as a girl child, we are taught how to behave. We are taught how to treat our male counterparts, etc., etc. But I don't recall, like I was saying, I don't recall any place, any time where I've had um, my brothers being taught how to treat a girl child, how to treat me as their sister. Instead, they were taught how to protect me. Mm. They were told, you need to protect your sister. If, I, if anything happened to me in the street, they will be the first ones to intervene, to protect yeah. me. Because the whole idea is that I'm vulnerable. I need to, pro- I need to be protected as a mm. woman, you know. Or to use corporal punishment uh, against wives and children uh, and to discipline uh, grown adults for uh, allegedly bad behaviour or behaviour they didn't like, a bizarre situation. How do you feel in Ireland now that you're living here as a woman? Do you feel safe as a woman in this country? Yeah, to a certain extent, but when you when one now starts to look at the statistics, uh, currently the statistics in Ireland during the COVID, I realize that this is not just a, a problem where I'm coming from. Even though maybe here the the the, the ideology is different, it's not men saying that that they have the right to punish women, but it still happens. Uh, the statistics is quite alarming to realize. Um, last week at the at the at the event the, at the presidential house. I was surprised once again when I had the statistics that it's so high that during the COVID when women were reporting either being abused. Uh, so it, I realized that I'm not safe even in Ireland because this is like, a, it's a pandemic. It's a global pandemic, actually. So the okay. only difference is that here in Ireland, at least leaders are being active about it, people are now uh, taking it seriously. And like you're saying, it was like a wake-up call what ha- what what happened last year to Miss Murphy, you know. Mm. So it's, people are taking a stance to say, no, it's enough, we, we have had enough, this has to change. Okay. So I think that's the only difference, maybe. Okay, well, the campaign is He for She. 
Yeah. Uh, President Michael E. Higgins is now a he for she champion. And thank you for talking to us. It's nice to speak to you as well, Empo. Uh, thank you for Thanks, joining Michael. us. Thank, thank you, Empo Makosu, who's uh, a former direct provision resident, uh, gender-based violence activist, and uh, a member of Massey. That's the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. The doll will be asked uh, this evening to vote in favour of introducing uh, an immediate emergency budget. Uh, The motion will be brought forward by Sinn Féin's spokesperson on finance, Piers Doherty, who's on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you, Piers Doherty. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, What's uh, the point to this, uh, given that it's uh, no prospect of succeeding? Well, look, the, the government uh, didn't want to move in terms of uh, petrol and diesel and cutting the excise on it um, earlier this year. Um, but because of a sustained campaign by ourselves, by members of the public, the, the, the fact that it was played out so much on, on media, it, it forced government to act. And that's exactly what we're trying to do again. We're trying to force the government to get their head out of the sand, to recognise that so many families out there, including people who are listening to the show this morning, are, are struggling to get by their they're, they're not looking at October. They're looking at the end of the week. They're looking at how to pay the energy bill or the gas bill. They're looking at, you know, as the kids finish school now, they're saying, well, you know, how am I going to deal with the cost of putting them back to school in, in end of August and in September? And for many, many families, they cannot afford to wait uh, another four months for the government to get their act together on this. So they, they need immediate uh, response, and that's what we're calling for. And we've heard some backbench TDs from government ranks criticising their own government, and rightly so, uh, for not doing more uh, this side of the summer in terms of cost of living. Mm. Uh, so this will be an opportunity for them as well. But, you know, we're hearing more and more voices every day. We see the You don't expect them to vote, though, uh, against the government, to vote in favour of your motion, do you? Well, look, you know, I think that every day that goes past, these backbench TDs are getting it in the neck. Uh, you know, they, they, I'm sure not everybody's out of touch in government. Uh, obviously, those at the top are. Um, but I'm sure there's some people in there that, that know very clearly from their constituency clinics the real impact that this is having. You know, they don't have to read the reports. The Bank of Ireland came out with a survey yesterday saying one in three families are finding it tough to make ends meet. Uh, we're seeing the Barnardos report. We're seeing St. Vincent de Paul have, have never had as high demand. Uh, charities that are providing food parcels are seeing triple in demand. And look, we just know it, what's happening out there. And how could it be any other way when you see the rises in prices in energy and petrol and diesel and food and, and clothing uh, that it's putting a serious pressure on individuals? So this is an opportunity to, for the government to do the right thing to you know, pay out cost of living cash payments to increase social welfare rates, to increase the minimum wage, uh, to reduce rents by putting a month's rent back into renters' pockets, cutting the cost of childcare by a third, you know, introducing a, a, a discretionary utility debt, debt uh, relief uh, fund, and 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 also to, um, to 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 make sure that we bring petrol, diesel, and home heat and oil down to the maximum allowed that's permissible under the European Union rules. So these are all things that the government can do if the political will is there, and these are things that the public really need to happen without delay. Not not, uh, everybody needs those type of measures put in place, do they? No, that's why our measures are, are, uh, in the main, are very, very targeted. Um, So, 
you're right in saying um, that inflation impacts on, on people differently. So, you know, some people who are well healed uh, are able to weather this, uh, you know, quite mm. comfortably. Uh, others are, are really, really struggling. So if you listen to what the, uh, the, the the budget office or, you know, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, a, a council that was set up to make sure that we didn't have a boom and bust or we didn't wreck our economy the way it happened over a decade ago, yeah. uh, they, they're, they're arguing that what the government has done since the start of the year has been untargeted 90% nearly 90% of it was untargeted. They're mm. arguing that there is scope for the government to do more, but it needs to be targeted. The central bankers in the same, the SRI are in the same, the OECD, they, that's a, a, a global institute, have basically mm. said that what the Irish government have done uh, has had little impact on, on those most affected, and that's why more needs to be uh, done in our view, and that's why they need to be targeted measures. Who is it that you're targeting? Though Those under 130,000 couples on joint incomes of 130,000, is it? Well, look, they are taxation measures, but even outside of taxation, and forget about what Sinn Féin is saying, the Central Bank, the SRI, and the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council are saying that the government has scope to do more without even raising taxes. And the reason they're saying that, Michael, is that when the Department of Finance prepared the budget last year, they predicted that this year, in 2022, we would have a deficit, the state would have a deficit of about €8 billion. Which is significant, um, but now what has been predicted by the SRI just this week is that instead of having to borrow uh, to pay for the running of the country to the tune of eight billion, we'll actually have a surplus of about one point six billion. And that's why all of these very conservative agencies are saying, "Look, you have scope to do more, and you need to do more now, but it needs to be targeted uh, so that so that the the revenue is there." Um, you know, also remember that every time a price goes up, so every time you see petrol going up in your in the in the in the in the court. Every time you see uh, the price of your food basket going up, every time you see that energy bill and it's higher this month than it was last month, the, the state brings in, the government brings in more revenue through VAT. Mm. And the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council pointed out that since the start of the year, the government have done about a billion euro of measures, um, but yet benefited from about two billion euro uh, because of inflation and growth. Uh, okay. So therefore, there is more that can be done, but it needs to be targeted. But isn't the cost of energy the biggest challenge that people are, are facing at the moment, uh, and that uh, takes us to the logic of uh, the government's approach uh, to waiting until the winter and people need to turn on their heating again. Yeah, but people are people are getting energy bills right now, uh, and they've already paid the high energy bills earlier on. And on top of energy, they've got petrol and diesel. They've got uh, all, all other measures as well in terms of food and, and clothing that are seeing increases as well. So, like, you know, all of this, nobody's going to isolate it and saying, well, I can just park everything. You know, like households that are sitting down and saying, well, you know, okay, we've got a 250 euro bill for our, our energy. How are we going to deal with that? Oh, well, the government says they're going to do something in, in, in October. So we leave it till then. Mm. You know, that doesn't work or it doesn't work. The narrative, which I think is crazy coming from government, is like things are going to get worse in the autumn. It's like saying to your child who comes up to you and saying, "Look, Mum, you didn't you didn't feed me yesterday," and saying, "Well, actually, you're going to be hungrier next week, so I'm not going to feed you for the week." You know, like people need support right here, right now. Maybe you know, like ministers don't need support. Yeah. You know, well, ministries ha- don't need support, but people uh, on low and middle incomes need support right now. And you know, across society, and as I said, from very conservative mm. organisations, they're saying that this should happen 
And the only people who are really arguing against this are the government themselves. All right, but your, your motion is very short. It's pretty vague, uh, but it does call for an emergency budget, which I think it is when uh, you put some flesh on the bones. How much are, are you suggesting the government would uh, spend now in, in a budget and how would that impact on what they do in October? Yeah, well, first of all, when you know, usually what happens when budgets are announced in October, and they used to be announced in December, but because of the European rules, we brought them forward to middle of October. That budget is for next year. Uh, so that budget, it's called Budget 2023. What we're seeing is that measures need to be introduced right now to help people at this point in time. And our measures uh, are, are in the region of over 1.3 billion euro. Uh, so that's targeted low and middle income earners. Of course, in October, we need to prepare a budget, which will have other measures that we'd see as a, uh, to the end of the year, but crucially in terms of 2023. Um, but So we've been very clear to the government. We've been, we haven't missed a, an opportunity, whether it's myself or Mary Lou or other teams, TDs uh, to raise the issues that we believe needs to be cha- uh, needs to be addressed. So all of the detail is there. The government know exactly what we're calling for in terms of you know putting a month's ba- rent back into renters' pockets or cutting childcare by a third or reducing fuel to the maximum amount. Like that can be done tonight. We could reduce petrol and diesel in the forecourts tonight. We could reduce the cost of a, a fill of home heating oil by 120 euro tonight if the political will was there. We should be increasing social welfare rates in line with inflation. Uh, the fact that these families are going to get poorer and the government are allowing that to happen is not acceptable. We recognise and we've said to government time and time again, we know what's causing inflation. It's not the government's fault in the main. It's because of the, the, the war in Ukraine and because of um, the pandemic before that. But we know that there is a moral responsibility. There's an obligation and a duty on government to protect those who are most vulnerable in society. And they are spectacularly failing to do that. And that's why this motion is an opportunity for TDs to do the right thing, to back the motion and to put pressure on government to act at this side of the summer. Okay. well, it'll certainly focus minds on the cost of living once again. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot about the motion and the debate on it this evening. Thank you indeed for joining us, Pierce Doherty, who is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on finance. Now, let me bring you some of the comments that have been coming to us today. A lot of people in touch with us today and a lot of people in touch with us about the hospital in Navan. Jim in Navan says there's clearly a power struggle going on between some politicians and health officials in relation to Our Lady's Hospital. The question is whose decision is it to make? Well, the ultimate decision is the minister's, uh, but... Uh, If the minister is usurping the health official's authority, then perhaps you'll see more of what uh, has happened, the resignation of Paul Reid as the CEO. At least uh, there's a theory going around that that's why Paul Reid has decided to resign. Maybe there's more to it, God knows. Sheila says, can the politicians please just get on with doing their jobs and leave the medical professionals, the experts, to get on with doing theirs. Tommy is in touch with us to say he's very uneasy with the hospital being used as a political football. Uh, Tommy says, surely the medical experts would not be so insistent that changes are needed unless improvements could be made with regard to patient care and safety. Obviously, nobody wants to see the hospital lose services, but maybe these changes are necessary to ensure that patients who do attend our ladies get the best possible service. Uh, And thank you, Tommy, for that. A lot of people in touch with us today, uh, it seems, uh, who think uh, that the politicians should keep... 
uh, their noses out of it and leave it to the medical experts. Eileen in Navin says it is suiting the politicians and government. Uh, that's this narrative coming from the HSC chiefs that the emergency department in Navin is not safe. Shame on those politicians if it is not safe because they've allowed that to happen. Why is that, she asks. Thank you indeed, Eileen, uh, for sharing your thoughts with us as well. Uh, somebody WhatsApping is saying, Patrick Tobin is full of nonsense. All stroke, heart attack or trauma is already delivered away from Navin. If it is not fit for purpose and it's only eight people a day, does he expect to have all of the medical expertise to be sent to Navin for eight people? It doesn't make sense. Our, our caller also says they'll have a 24-hour minor injury unit. Uh, just listen to the medics. I think it's a, a medical assessment unit and a 12-hour uh, minor injury unit. Um, but thank you in, indeed um, for your message to the programme. Uh, another text uh, from Mark and Kells who says, Hi Michael, I think you should be sitting on the fence when discussing Navin A&D, but you day and day day by day, jump from one side of the fence to the other, depending on whom you're interviewing. No disrespect, but I think you're just uh, being aggressive uh, in making the arguments. Thanks indeed, uh, Mark, uh, for that. I take that as a compliment, actually, Mark, because uh, there's very strong feelings on both sides, and I hope that both sides are representative represented in all conversations. Rose, thank you for your WhatsApp message as well. She says, only for the hospital in Navin. I wouldn't be here today. I passed out after walking into the A&E in Navin. If it wasn't there, I wouldn't have made it. And the nurses and the doctors were just brilliant. I'm very well today and I'm very glad to hear that. Thank you indeed, uh, Rose, for sharing that with us. Um, we somebody else in touch with us uh, saying that uh, Pater, not Pater Tobin again. This uh, was uh, this came into us earlier in the program when Pater Tobin was speaking to us. Not Pater Tobin again, said our caller. He's very negative all the time. He speaks to you. I've never heard him say anything positive. Please uh, get someone else on to speak. Our caller said they were turning off the radio uh, because uh, we were speaking to Pater Tobin again. Um, thank you indeed. I'm sure there's a lot of people who found everything you had to say very positive. Uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts if you have done so today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's uh, speak uh, to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Good morning to you, Sean, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, government meeting uh, this morning. Uh, one of the issues uh, that is top of uh, the agenda, of course, is uh, this zero tolerance five year strategy that uh, Minister Helen McEntee is bringing to Cabinet on domestic, sexual, and gender based violence. It's a big strategy, 144 actions planned as part of this €363 million Euro initiative. That's right, yeah, a kind of overarching five-year plan. Uh, there's a number of things under it as part of what Mr. Hannah McAfee basically is saying is the zero-tolerance approach, and this is something she's really wanted to push as Justice Minister since she came in. She wanted to put a stamp on the likes of, uh, of sexual and domestic uh, and, and violence, and uh, like you say, a lot of actions in it. I think the big ones are doubling the number of refuge places at the moment. It's 141. Over oh, the lifetime of the plan over five years, they want to double it to at least 280 and possibly more. And we have a situation, obviously, at the moment where there's quite a few counties where there have been no refuge spaces available for quite some time, and that provides a lot of difficulty in getting women out of domestic violence situations. We've also got changes to legislation, which are planned, like increasing the uh, penalty for assault causing harm, which is one of the 
most common charges, I suppose, when you're dealing with domestic violence cases, so increasing that from five to ten years, and then also setting up a, a new statutory agency, so TUSLA will no longer be in charge uh, of this from a policy direction point of view, and there will be a new dedicated agency set up uh, on the, the January 2024, I think is the date they have for that, to manage the government's uh, plans, manage the government's strategy on it, and also get information campaigns and the likes of that out there in order to try and reduce uh, the impact of domestic and, and sexual-based violence in Ireland. All right. Um, is it wise to use a term like zero tolerance? Are, are you not putting yourself up to fail when uh, you talk about zero tolerance? Uh, because it's impossible to achieve, is it not? It's probably impossible to achieve, but also, you know, what other phrase would you use? Would you say some tolerance? So whether we have some tolerance in society to domestic and sexual-based violence, I think you have to set the goal as being a zero, sorry for some alarm going off sure. in the background there, <laughs> okay. I think you have to um, set the goal as being zero and to make it something that is totally socially unacceptable in our society because it, it is out there. Now, will you ever actually achieve it in practice? No, you won't because there will always be someone or something that goes on behind closed doors, unfortunately, but I think by setting it as that goal, you can reduce it by absolutely as much as possible, which is what we should be doing. Mm. And it's something I think uh, that the Minister has taken very seriously and has been very proactive and this is very important to her personally it would seem to me at least uh, do you believe uh, that it is going to bring about that it will affect positive change? I, look I hope so I mean it's not the first time we've seen a strategy on this issue it's not the first time we've seen promises on this issue I think to be fair she's laid out a system of accountability quite well in it so as you said 141 actions is going to be uh, yearly um, implementation plans produced and six monthly reviews of whether or not all those actions are actually being met and I think as well the fact that we've seen such a social change over the last few years you've seen the likes of the Me Too movement you've seen a number of high profile cases of violence and unfortunately murder uh, against women in this country that have brought around, I think, probably more shock and more disapproval than they maybe would have in Ireland in decades past. So I think the social wind is behind it as well. And hopefully, yeah, with a proper government campaign, they can definitely uh, reduce the number of cases and make Ireland a better place for women to live in. Uh, I take it uh, some time will be given uh, by members of uh, the government today to discuss the resignation of Paul Reid as the Chief Executive Officer of the HSE and what led to that resignation. Yeah, I don't know whether it'll be a formal memo or cabinet but certainly it's something that ministers will be discussing that seemed to kind of sneak up on them certainly on the T-shirt. He said the first he found out was yesterday morning when Paul Reid texted him and he rang him then to to have a discussion about it, but it is a big resignation and obviously a lot of the questions are, was there any political involvement here? Was the row over uh, the, the ED at Navin Hospital maybe the culmination of a, a lot of disagreements that have been had over the last few years between the health branch and the government branch of our system? The teacher next said he, he completely denied that yesterday, said there was no connection between the two at all. And there is an element, I suppose, of a burnout in the health service, of course, is going to be. I'm sure we've seen it in most companies that after COVID, people are reassessing their priorities. And I think most of all, perhaps some people senior in the agency who were working those, you know, 100, 150 hour weeks um, over the last few years. Of course, there was going to be a bit of attrition. But when you see Paul Reid going, you see Tony Hulan going, you see Ronan Glynn going, and then also the resignations of Solange Care, it's quite worrying that a lot of the people who we thought were meant to lead this transformation of the health service are now gone mm. and need to be replaced. Uh, and Dan O'Connor for that matter. Uh, but when it comes to Paul Reid's resignation, uh, it's very hard to think that it, it hadn't uh, come about because of the situation in Navan. 
Uh, and it, it seems as though he was being put in an impossible situation, that he was being asked to preside over a, a situation uh, that the hospital in Navan would provide emergency department services to people when it wasn't safe to do so. Yeah, it, it was brewing into an extraordinary political row, and it's very, very rare. I mean, there have been disagreements down through the years. You know, there's a number of very good books on the pandemic out now that will very much highlight that and the differences of opinion. But this incredibly publicly where Paul Reid was saying, no, this is the HTC decision, we're going to reconfigure it, this is the clinical advice you have. Uh, um, doctors in the hospital saying that this is, you know, this is not safe, that we need, we need to do this. And then on the other hand, the government is coming out and saying, well, no, absolutely, there is no political decision being made and just hold your horses here because we have to actually make a call on it. So they were very much on a collision course. I think um, the Taoiseach yesterday saying, ultimately, the Dáil could provide legislation to keep it open. That would be a very strange route to go down that you have the HSC trying to make an operational decision based on the expertise it has. And politicians, because they want to, you know, they're looking after their local patch or being seen to look after their local patch by keeping it open, then actually legislating to override the people that they pay to look after the health service. It's bananas to think about. Mm. Okay, Sean, we'll leave it there uh, for the moment. Uh, Undoubtedly, there will be questions uh, put to Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, and indeed Helen McEntee is the Minister for Justice uh, about this through the day and what influence they brought to bear on Paul Reid's decision. And we'll be speaking to the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, on the programme tomorrow. But thank you indeed for the moment, our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Now let's uh, take some comments from some of our listeners. One from a man who's 55 years of age, and he says he's trying to convince his parents, who are both in their 70s, to sell up their house and move to Spain. Uh, the reason is that our listener says they could live there for a quarter of the price that you can in Ireland with free health care, and you have an address there with no waiting lists. Pat in Balbriggan says, Good morning, Michael, on the Crow Park incidents. Armagh, Tyrone, Donegal, they all have history and most, if not all, on pitch brawls over the last 10 years. Being from Ulster, they're allowed to get away with it. If it was Dublin, Kerry, Mead that were involved, they'd be punished. Thank you, Pat. Interesting. Anthony Nardi says, Michael, I never cease to be amazed at uh, the statements uh, that are made as fact in some of uh, these interviews when Patrick Tobin says one of the first three considerations of a company like PayPal uh, would be uh, where is the nearest hospital? I think it's utter rubbish and should be challenged in any of the interviews held with people considering foreign direct investment. I've never heard such a requirement mentioned, never mind in the top three, says Anthony. I'm surprised to hear you say that, Anthony. I mean, I think we quite often hear uh, about schools, colleges, hospitals, uh, airports, rail lines. All of these things are are very important uh, for these companies uh, when uh, they're setting up uh, so that people will want to work for them where they're setting up. Uh, Somebody else saying, I wonder if uh, you'd be able to help me. I'll be 70 uh, on my next birthday. Uh, I I fish locally and I've been doing this all my life, but uh, I'm not allowed to fish for salmon. But at the same time, I'm expected to buy a licence. It costs costs 56 euro for the licence. But if I fish for salmon, I'm fined 150 euro uh, if I'm stopped for doing it. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us. I'm not sure that we can help. Uh, somebody else uh, says, does anyone find when they go to the doctor uh, that the doctor doesn't seem to have the proper sleeve to take blood pressure? Oh, I'd call that. 
<laughs> I haven't come across that. Maybe somebody listening to us has. Claire Mead says, Michael, look at the money that there's in that there is in this country. Build up the hospital in Navan. Do something for ordinary people instead of always taking and never giving. People are, are tired sitting in hospitals for days. All hospitals make mistakes. Come on, Michael, shout, shout, says Claire. Uh, and uh, Tony in County Louth uh, says uh, he wonders what medical medical qualifications Patrick Tobin has. Uh, it's um, the doctors uh, that should be making uh, these decisions. I, I think he says, uh, what about the undesirable consequence of democracy that someone can be plucked about, plucked from the general public one day uh, and um, then given a position of responsibility for a field that they probably have no qualification in. Well, thank you for sharing that thought with us today as well. Thanks to everybody for that matter who has been in touch with us so far this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a, a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a, a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally, and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Tara McManus of uh, Dramad Garda Station joins us for the report this week. And the first report is of criminal damage in Black Rock. This actually goes back a, a couple of weeks in time. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, this one is the 14th of June, um, and we're just kind of reappealing to people for information on this one. So this was the South Beach Medical Centre on the Main Street in Black Rock was actually um, the subject of an arson attack on the 14th of June at about 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, So we're still investigating this one. Um, We believe that um, some of the culprits might have escaped on foot into the local, um, the Ferns housing estate there in Black Rock. So we would be keen if anyone has any information on that one or noticed anything unusual or saw anybody running at that hour of the morning to maybe contact our colleagues in Blackrock. Burglary in Drogheda a week ago to report on next. Yeah, this one happened on Tuesday the 21st, last Tuesday at about one o'clock in the afternoon. On George's Street, a man walked into an unlocked house, took the television and walked back out. So um, a very brazen act there and I'm sure somebody must have seen this gentleman walking down George's Street with um, a television in his hand. So if so, we would ask you to please contact our colleagues in Drogheda who are investigating that one. Okay, uh, a theft uh, to report on next. Uh, This happened in Navan and again, it was this day last week. Yeah, this was Tuesday the 21st at 5 o'clock in the evening. The land is there in Abbeylands in Navan. Um, two females entered that shop and took a number of items, including um, alcohol from behind the counter, and left the premises without paying for it. Um, so we would be very keen to, um, to speak to anybody who was in around that Landis, excuse me, in the Abbeylands um, last Tuesday and who might have noticed those two females um, filling bags there with alcohol and other products from um, the Landis. A burglary in Drum Conrath last Wednesday. Yeah, this one is Wednesday the 22nd of June at 2 o'clock in the afternoon uh, at Mandistown in Drumcondra. A uh, homeowner returned home to find that the house had been broken into, um, excuse me, the drawers were ransacked, um, a large amount of cash taken and some jewellery and we believe the culprits there just uh, walked out the front door um, so possibly the front door was left unlocked 
So look, I suppose that's an appeal to people to just make sure, even if you're only leaving the house for five, ten minutes, it's hugely important that you lock the doors and you close your windows because there's always somebody watching and waiting for the ideal opportunity. All right, and uh, we've uh, uh, another opportunity that uh, they took, uh, another burglary that you're appealing for information on. This one happened uh, again last Wednesday, but it was in Dundalk and it was a violent affair. Yeah, this was an aggravated burglary that took place last Wednesday, the 22nd of June at 7 o'clock in the evening uh, on a house there at Mulliharlan Road in Dundalk. Um, the house was broken into and a number of men broke into that house um, and we believe that they were armed with a hammer and indeed with a bar and they took a quite substantial amount of um, property from that house. Now, a dark Audi A6 and a state car was seen driving dangerously in that area in around the same time. So we possibly think that Audi was connected with this incident. Uh, so again, that was at um, 7 o'clock. So it would be appealing to anybody who was in that area that may have seen that um, dark Audi A6 estate in that area. And if they have any information on that one or dash cam footage or anything like that, our colleagues in Dundalk would be very keen to speak to them. I'm sure they would. Uh, and indeed, uh, there's a, another burglary that happened in Dundalk. Uh, this particular one that Gardaí would like information on happened on Friday gone by. Friday the 25th, um, between the hours of 7pm and 8pm, a man and a woman broke into the shed at the back of a house at Fahart Gardens there on St. Patrick's Terrace in Dundalk. They broke into the shed and they took a number of items from the shed um, and again, very, very brazen, just walked in and, and, and took what they wanted. So again, anyone that was in that area that may have seen that last Friday between 7 and 8, I mean, it's still very bright at that hour of the evening. Somebody may have noticed something and again, our colleagues in Dundalk would like to speak to you. We're in Drogheda on Saturday, just gone by, where you're appealing for information about a robbery that happened in the town. Yeah, this one is quite um, significant, Michael. This one happened um, about one o'clock in the morning, the early hours of last Saturday, the 26th. A man was walking home from work around the Balls Grove area in Drogheda, where two men who were wearing balaclavas stopped him. They demanded that he hand over his phone and his wallet. And when he refused to do so, um, they attacked this man and they actually stabbed him. And he uh, sustained a serious stab wound to his back. Um, now, we have no um, CCTV, or we, or we just, sorry, we don't have any description, might I say, of the culprits, but this is a very serious incident, and that man has um, serious injury to his back. Um, so we would be very keen to speak to anybody who may have been in the Ballsgrove area of Drogheda last Saturday, the 26th, at 1 o'clock in the morning, and who might have seen something, or might have noticed or heard a scuffle, um, that man has had a seriously injured, so we'd really like to speak to anybody who has information on that one. I'm sure. A lot of people would think of that as Friday night, uh, yeah. Friday night, the early hours of Saturday morning, so that's 1 o'clock uh, uh, on Friday night, or 1 o'clock on Saturday morning, depending on how you look on it, uh, in the Ballsgrove area, a very serious incident, and uh, I'm sure Gardy would be very keen to hear from anybody if they have any information information about that. And we're going to conclude in Johnstown, a burglary that occurred on Saturday. Yeah, this one the same time as well. So again, the early hours of Saturday the 25th at about five o'clock in the morning, the house there, including the boy near Johnstown, um, the injured party was up in bed and heard a bit of commotion, came down and found a man wandering through the house. Um, now, this man didn't actually take anything, but again, very frightening that he just broke into the house at that hour of the morning and was 
wandering around deciding what to take. Um, he was obviously scared off by the person who lived there and fled um, out through um, a window, would you believe? But again, nothing taken. But again, a very frightening experience for the person who was living in that house. But again, just an appeal to people. I know it's very, very warm at night, but you really need to close your windows because people will take any opportunity to break in and to, to take property. So please close your windows at night, lock your doors and just keep yourself safe. Okay, thank you indeed. Garda Tara McManus of Dramad Garda Station will return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, let me uh, bring you some more comments. Uh, Paddy and Navin, uh, first of all. Paddy says, uh, when it comes to the hospital in Navin, they have to start at the beginning and solve the problem. People being moved from Navin to Drogheda and having to sit for hours before being seen too. It happened to Paddy himself a few months ago and he says, I spent four hours sitting in Navin first, then sent to the Lourdes in Drogheda and then I had to wait another five hours. Three weeks ago, I brought a lady to Navin suffering with stress. She spent almost six hours there before she was sent to Drogheda where she had to wait seven hours. Solve these problems first, he says. Thanks, uh, Paddy, for that. Uh, We heard Paul Reid speaking over the weekend uh, about how it would be a mistake to keep the emergency department open. Uh, And this is something he's been saying for some time. We're going to go back a couple of weeks uh, in time to the Oireachtas Health Committee and some of the things Paul Reid was saying uh, about the emergency department in Navin then. The risks identified have been, first of all, there is no local emergency department governance in place in Navin Hospital. Um, There's no acute surgical uh, service in place in Navin Hospital. An agency registrar uh, provides, uh, and and not specialist in the emergency department, provides the cover in in Navin. Um, And, you know, there's there's very significant issues in terms of one of the smallest ICUs in the country. Those risks have been highlighted to me very significantly by the Chief Chief Clinical Officer of the HSE, uh, the Clinical Lead for Acute Services nationally, uh, the anaesthetist specialists in the local hospitals, surgical specialists, physicians, NCHDs and nursing, all the way to myself, a CEO, and the board of the HSE, and indeed and the department. I, in my role as as CEO of the HSE, have to take those risks very seriously. I take any risks associated with patient safety, and saving patients' lives very seriously. Uh, So I can't ignore that. I have to address it. We have very well aligned ourselves with the department on it to progress a number of actions to make that safer. Now, obviously, I'll take full cognizance uh, of government's concerns, and we'll address government concerns through through the process that we're in at the moment. And I've heard publicly those statements, and we're happy and will continue to address those concerns that ministers have, or all ministers may have, ministers of government have, we will address those concerns over the full week. But we'll address them in a manner to progress safety in, in the hospital. We can't compromise, and I can't compromise, the safety issues highlighted by just clinical if, specialists. If, now, if, obviously, there's political concerns. I, I live in the real world. Uh, we have political concerns. Things that are local are very big issues for politicians nationally. And I fully understand that. And we will address all of those concerns in the coming time frame over the next couple of weeks. Uh, any concerns that any government minister has. The initial meeting that convened earlier this week uh, was with all of the Oculus members in the areas. It was attended by all the senior... Okay, that's Paul Reid speaking a couple of weeks ago at the Oireachtas Health Committee. And when you hear how concerned he is that lives will be lost in Navin and you consider that he's being told by the Minister for Health not to 
close the emergency department. Is it really a, a great surprise that he, he's decided to resign? Uh, let's go to Westminster now and a bit of history when uh, the British government announced uh, it's introducing legislation which will allow our British government to rip up the Northern Ireland Protocol. I can absolutely confirm to my right honourable friend that this bill is both necessary and legal and the government has published a legal statement setting it out. I'll make a bit more progress and then I'll allow some further interventions. We continue to raise the issues of concern with our European partners, but we simply cannot allow this situation to drift. Northern Ireland has been without a devolved government since February, due specifically to the protocol, at a time of major global economic challenges. Therefore, it is the duty of this government to act now to enable a plan for restored local government to begin. It is both legal and necessary. I think as many would disagree with that and certainly argue the point. Uh, that's uh, the British Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss. Bringing our programme to its conclusion, God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.